Well, again, good morning. It's great to see everybody. Uh, happy Memorial Day weekend. Uh, we do have a little bit uh, a different setup this morning. Our children would usually go out if you are five and up, uh, but we're going to all stay, and so we're going to have a family service today. So kids, you'll get to be in here if uh, you need help with that, parents. There are crayons and coloring sheets in the lobby. This is an invitation to get up and do that at any point, okay, during the service. You will not disrupt or interrupt anybody. Uh, we love having our children in here with us and worshiping with us. Uh, and we are going to continue uh, this morning as we worship as a family. Um, you know, this week has been a difficult week. Uh, my heart, as I'm sure your heart, has been very heavy this weekend in light of the news of what happened uh, at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. And it's just, it's a burden. It's a burden and it's a heartbreaking thing as we gather this morning, uh, as we think about those families and what that community is going through. And I just, I wanted to begin with that because in such times, we as followers of Christ, as followers of Jesus, um, we can turn to him. And so as we gather here this morning, we want to turn to him. And we want to turn in particular to his word uh, because it offers us peace and hope. If you were here last week, we looked at Romans chapter 8 and um, considered how the glory of Christ set before us uh, actually gives us the strength and the hope and the joy we need in the face of suffering uh, in this life. And if you were not here, I want to encourage you uh, to go back and listen to that sermon on our podcast. But even more, I want to encourage you to read Romans 8. Uh, read Romans 8, especially the last half of the chapter. Uh, just let it minister to you, especially in light of this week's events. And this week, what we're going to do is we're going to continue in Romans, uh, Romans chapter 9. And I think Romans offer, offers us a continued comfort. Continued comfort here in chapter 9 in a world marked by tragedy, comfort that rests on the promises of God, uh, the promise that no matter what happens, God's mercy will sustain us. God's mercy will sustain us, that he is at work in all things, in all things, to bring about deliverance, and that his promises will never fail. And so we want to look at his word and be comforted by his word in Romans 9 this morning. So I want to invite you to grab your Bible, open it up to Romans chapter 9, or you can Open up your app, Romans chapter 9. And as you're opening to that, I just want to um, kind of give a little preface to Romans 9 through 11. We, we've kind of we've hit a mountaintop here at the end of chapter 8. And it kind of felt that way as we, we kind of rose uh, to this great truth that we are more than conquerors in Christ and that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. But as we come to chapter 9, um, 9 through 11... Uh, you could kind of think in the topography of Romans, it, it's kind of this, this valley. Not in that it, it's dark or that we're kind of descending in anything, but it is this kind of section here in Romans that's kind of difficult to understand at times. So 9 through 11, it kind of, we kind of enter into this valley with the Apostle Paul, and he's going to explain and expound on some things that are complicated. 
uh, they're complicated, uh, in part uh, because of the nature of what he's discussing, in part because of the nature of his argument and the way he approaches it. It's full of Old Testament references, and it touches uh, on more than we could possibly cover in the next few weeks. And that's going to be true here uh, for 9 as much as it is for 10 and 11 as we work our way through this valley in Romans. But here's what I want to say on the front end of this as we enter into chapter 9. I would say the key to understanding 9, and really 9 through 11, uh, part of the key is to see the heart of the apostle behind it. And I think it's just so important because what this is not is it's not an academic theological lecture on the nature of predestination and election and the future of Israel. It does teach us things about all of that, but it is not primarily a lecture. It is a man writing to a church in Rome where there are Jews and Gentiles who are wrestling with real questions about why the people of God, Israel, have rejected God's Messiah. And, in light of that, what place Israel and its traditions and its history have in their lives now as, a follower, as followers of Christ. That, that's the context in which he's speaking these things. And it's relevant for them, and I think it's relevant for us. And so we want to understand Paul's heart here. And what is obvious, and I think that we can connect to at a visceral level, again, in light of this week's events, is that Paul's heart is breaking. He is speaking to us. He is writing from a posture of heart brokenness. His heart is breaking for his people, for people in a fallen and broken world, his people Israel. And his heart is breaking. It's longing for them to know Jesus. That's what he, that he, that's what he wants us to understand. And so I would say the first thing I want us to see in Romans 9 is this, that this is an invitation to let our hearts break for those without Jesus. Because that's what Paul's heart is doing. It's breaking for the people in his life that don't have Jesus, namely Israel. Look at what Paul says right at the beginning of chapter 9. He begins by saying, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. What is Paul talking about? Why does he seemingly need to defend his honor why does he have to say, look, I'm not lying. I'm not lying. Why, why does he have to say that? Well, what's the problem? The problem, uh, in a sense, is actually the gospel. The problem is the gospel that's been pres- presented in chapters 1 through 8. As you read through Romans, you discover that there's this good news. It's new. There's Something's changed. Something's happened. And so in Romans 1 through 8, we find this Jesus who has come And the question is, with this change, has something fundamentally changed about the status of Israel and their relationship with God, their covenant relationship? And it might, it might be that you read one through eight and you came to the conclusion that now, in light of what's happened with Jesus coming, the Jews had their chance and they're out and now the Gentiles are in. You, you You could come to that conclusion and people did. That was one of the things he was pointing out. And so he he comes to this problem and he says, look, you may think the Jews had their chance and they blew it, and now they're kind of like in a reality show. They're like voted off the island, right? Like they're out. They didn't make the next cut. But listen to what listen to what how he goes on. He goes on, he goes on to talk about what's happened with the Jews. And he says, look, here's what's happened. He says, they had everything. They had everything. And he gives us a laundry list of what they had. In Romans 9, verses 4 and 5, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, 
worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. From them, their descendants, from their race, according to the flesh, who came? Jesus. Jesus is of Israel. They had everything before them, which begs the question, if they had everything going for them, and the gospel is the power of God for salvation, like he says in chapter 1, and Israel had the roadmap to salvation, how did they miss Jesus? How did they miss him? How could that possibly have happened? Now, as followers of Jesus, I think especially from our historic perspective, we could kind of look back on this and even look at Israel today, and we would be tempted to take a posture of judgment, I think. We would judge Israel. We would look down on them or write them off. I think that's a real temptation. Again, to think, well, they had their shot and they rejected Jesus, and now their time is over. And now it's the time of the church or of the Gentile church, to be specific. But Paul's heart here inspires us not to judge Israel or anyone else, for that matter, who rejects Jesus. It's not a posture of judgment. It's a posture of compassion. His heart is in anguish. It is broken. Paul's heart is broken for them. Think, uh, like Paul, put yourself in his shoes. The people that you love the most in your life, think about those people right now and the people in your life that you love the most who don't know Christ. Your heart, does your heart break for them? The people who outright reject Jesus in your life, who are even hostile towards him, What's the predisposition of your heart towards those people in your life? Is it hardened by judgment or by woundedness? Is it difficult to show them grace? Is it difficult to pray for them? Do you feel anguish? Do you feel anguish in your heart for your neighbor, your political adversaries, those who are antagonistic within your family towards your own faith? Paul is saying his heart broke for those people in his life, for Israel specifically. And I think we need to ask that question specifically of Israel as well. It's not just the people in our life, it's Israel specifically. As the church, far too often there has been an anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic position within the church, a, a heart disposition to hate God's covenant people. And we have and we need to repent of that. There's no place for it. In the church. In fact, we are called to share in Paul's anguish. Our hearts should break for Israel for them to know the true Messiah. That should be our heart longing for people to know Christ and the hope that He alone offers. And to be able to do that, to offer that kind of hope, we have to be convinced that we have that hope, that we ourselves have that hope in Jesus. And I've thought about that a lot, again, in light of Uvalde this week. Just thinking about those parents, thinking about those families, that school, that community, and and just trying, I mean, I can't, I can't imagine the pain and the grief and the anger that they must be feeling right now. I mean, how do you, how do you go on living when this happens? How do you have hope after something like this happens? And the only hope I know that's greater than that evil, that is greater than that tragedy, is the hope of the cross and the resurrection. That is the only hope 
the hope that is offered in Jesus that I know that is greater than what's been blasted across our TV screens for the last week. And we know this. Jesus is our hope. We have this hope. And our heart should break for other people to have it. It should break for the people of Uvalde to have that hope, the hope of Jesus Christ. And so we need to pray. We need to pray for our neighbors. We need to pray for Israel. We need to pray for the world to know, and we need to pray for Uvalde, that they would know the hope that is found only in Christ. And so like Paul, we want our hearts, this is an invitation for our hearts to break for those who are without Jesus. The second thing I want to highlight from Romans chapter 9 is what Paul says in 9 verse 6. He says, but it's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. I think what Paul is getting at here is an encouragement. It's been an invitation to let our hearts break now. It's an encouragement to remember that God's promises never fail. They never fail. How does that connect with verse 6? What does Paul mean? So we have to do a little work here. So stick with me. If God chose Israel and promised to save Israel and the world through Israel, which he did, and they reject Jesus the Messiah... The Savior was all that for nothing. Was all that that God has done. In other words, there's a whole Old Testament, a waste of time, a monumental waste of time with Israel. Is the gospel just not that powerful? Or did God just change his mind? Or did he lie? Is he not keeping his promises to Israel that he would save them? And that they would be the means through which he would save the world. A few verses later, Paul explains that in reality, not all of Israel has rejected Jesus. He and others like him and the disciples, the earliest Jewish Christians, they did embrace Jesus as the Messiah. And this small group within Israel remained faithful. They represented a faithful remnant of the true Israel, is what Paul says here. He's describing a small, faithful group who were following the Messiah among Israel, and what's happening is that small faithful group is growing, and it's expanding, and as it does, here's the miracle of all miracles, it expands not just to other uh, Jews, it expands to Gentiles, and so they are brought in to this remnant, this faithful people of God, what he describes as the promissory, or the true and faithful Israel. So here's Paul's argument, he's saying, What makes someone part of the people of God, how you can have Israelites who are not Israelites, what makes that possible is you can actually uh, be a part of the ethnic people of of Israel and not true Israel. Because what makes someone part of the people of God has never been about lineage or the law. It's always been about saving faith. He's already presented that to us. He pointed to Abraham as an example. And now that Jesus has come, that saving faith in Jesus Christ is what makes you part of his people. It's what makes you part of true Israel, or what is now called the church, whether your ethnicity is Jewish or you're a Gentile. Now, I want to be careful here. I'm not saying the church replaces Israel. It does not. Rather, true Israel is the faithful remnant that now includes non-Jews through Christ. That's what's happened. So Paul describes them as the Israel of the promise on the one hand and the Israel of the flesh. And so this is what Paul gets at in Romans chapter 11, as we'll get on into the rest of this section. Gentiles are being grafted in, and ethnic Jewish branches are being cut off. And so what's happening is there's this new forming people of God that is in line with Israel and continues 
on into this new covenant. And so what's Paul, just kind of step back and understand the story that he's telling here, maybe. If, if you got kind of turned around on it. I said it was kind of complicated. And so if, if you kind of lost the narrative, here's the narrative, right? Paul says the story of Israel is in a way a real tragedy. From Abraham and, and Sarah to Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Esau, he kind of walks this out in the passage. God's chosen people have not chosen him. He chose them. They didn't choose him. They rejected him. And so Israel has been pruned further and further and further until there's this remnant. There's this faithful few. And he's allowed this remnant to remain in order that his mercy might be carried to the whole world through his son and the gospel of Jesus Christ. In another way, the story of Israel is a story of redemption. How God has worked through his chosen people, even in their failure and their rejection of him, to do what he promised, to reveal his son, Jesus the Messiah. The Messiah not just of Israel, ethnic Israel, but of all Israel, including the nations that he will bring to himself through Israel. So that through faith we might become a multi-ethnic global family and inheritors of the promise of Abraham. That's the story of scripture. That's the journey we're a part of. And so what it means is this. This is what it all means. It means that God's purposes have not failed. God's purposes have not failed. Even as ethnic Israel rejected the Messiah, Israel, true Israel, the true Israel of the promise has believed. And why is this important? This ought to encourage us. That's why I said encourage that God's promises never fail. This ought to give us hope that God's purposes cannot be thwarted no matter what. His promises are always kept. And so even in your life and in my life, even when we reject him, even when we choose not God, he can actually use that to bring us to himself. That's what he's done in the history of Israel. He's used their rejection to bring the nations to himself, and he can do the same thing in our lives. Put it another way, God's bigger than our sin or our failure. He's bigger. He's huge because the, worship, the God we worship has chosen to save us. And so the thing here about, you know, he talks about election and predestination and we're not going to dive into that deep well. It is a deep well. There are things that we want to learn and understand about it. Let me say this. The thing to remember about election and predestination is that its purpose is to actually give us reassurance. Reassurance that God's grace is enough to save us. That he will never leave us or fail us. I think sometimes, not sometimes, a lot of times, we get so wrapped around the axle in these terms that it actually undermines that very thing it was meant to encourage. It makes us worry about our eternal destiny when it all the time was meant to reassure us. So Paul says here, look, here's the deal. God loves you and he chooses you. And this was always his purpose to do and that his purpose will never fail because election means our savior is, salvation is anchored ultimately in his initiative because he is determined to save and salvation will happen. Salvation will happen come hell or high water. It will happen because it is his will that it will happen. Now, I don't pretend to understand how all that works. <laughs> I don't. I don't understand how that intersects with my free will to respond in faith. I, I really don't. I, I want to keep asking that question and ask that the Spirit would reveal that to me, but I don't fully understand it. But here's what I believe. I believe that one day I will stand in eternity with God, and I will look back over the course of my life, and what will be undeniable is I will see God's mercy and his faithfulness at work to deliver me and rescue me because he chose me. And he loves me.
In other words, we will see how big God is. He's huge. We talked about that last week. You get closer to Jesus, he gets bigger and bigger and bigger. God is huge. And I think right now, in a moment like this, we need God to be big, really big. We need God to be big because we have hard questions and there's not easy answers in the face of things like this tragedy. We need a big, big God. I love what Michael Bird in his commentary on Romans 9 said. He says, if you wrestle with a big God, you know what you get? Big faith muscles, right? We want to wrestle, right, with a big God, and he's big enough. He's big enough to handle our doubts and our questions and, and all the things that we come to him with in moments like this. Why, God? Why did this happen? Why didn't you stop it? I don't understand why these, why? He's big enough. And the truth is, I want a big God. I don't want a puny God who offers me sentimental platitudes and superficial advice and hacks for better parenting or the dating life I always wanted. Not me personally. I've got what I wanted. (laughs) We need a big God. We need a big God, don't we? Whose character is to keep promises even when we don't. We need a big God who's faithful even when we reject him, who shows us grace upon grace upon grace, whose steadfast love never fails. We need a big God who keeps his promises. So Romans 9, invitation to let our hearts break for the lost, and encouragement to remember God's promises never fail. And then last thing briefly, I just want to say, it's a call to worship. It's, it's doxology. I mean, Romans is doxology. It's drawing us to worship this God who is the sovereign God of mercy. Mercy is all over this passage, all over it. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part, says Paul in verse 14? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And so that depends not on human will or exertion, but on God and his mercy. Depends on his mercy. See, Paul anticipates our our concern. I think if we step back and we think about what's happening here, ultimately we might wonder, okay, well, if it's all God's plan and his election and his promises and his purposes, it can't fail, they can't be thwarted, then are we all just kind of chess pieces on the board game of life? Or worse than that, if you have a real fatalistic view, are we just kind of ants, you know, and like he squashes some and he spares others. Like, How does God just randomly choose who he's going to save and who he's going to reject? What are we to think when we read in passages like this, that he will have mercy on some and he will harden the hearts of others? It's important, I think, as we wrestle with these questions, remember again the story, the big step back and see the big picture story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is not this, that human beings are basically good people and there's no apparent reason that God would ever choose to save some and others, not others, because we're all good and we're all okay. And God loves us. That's not the story of the Bible. That is not the gospel. In Romans, Paul has been gone to painstaking lengths. Read it again, one through eight. Painstaking lengths to show us that we are a part of a world living in open rebellion against God. And that Israel shares in that rebellion, even the chosen people of God. The world, human beings have rejected God and deserve judgment and death. But God in his mercy, in his mercy, in his mercy, he chooses to have mercy on us. 
Because it's who he is. It's his nature. It's his character. And he wants that mercy, who he is, his glory declared to all the earth. God has determined to reveal this mercy to the world. How? Through his son. That all who have faith in him might receive mercy. As one commentator put it, God is absolutely sovereign, but he is unimaginably merciful. He's both. He's both. Christ came for all, and God's desire is that none should perish, 2 Peter 3.9. The truth is we all deserve judgment and death. The truth is we all have been shown mercy. Nowhere is God's mercy more powerfully demonstrated than on the cross, the cross of Jesus, where he took our sin, he took our punishment, he took the just judgment that we deserve so that we might know what? Mercy. God's mercy is demonstrated on the cross. And for all who put their faith in Jesus, whether Jew or Gentile, of any nation, and any time, and any place on the earth, there is forgiveness and freedom from death and life eternal with God. It's through Jesus that we are made right with God and we'll be with him for eternity. Not because we're good people who deserve it, but because of his mercy. His mercy. I just want to ask you, do you know his mercy? Did you remember it this morning when you got up? Every day he shows us mercy. Every day he shows us mercy. And when we know his mercy, we can show his mercy. And this world needs mercy. This is a broken and sinful and hurting world, and it needs to know the God of mercy. We need it. Our families need it. Our neighbors need it. Uvalde needs it. The mercy of God. The hope of the resurrection. Romans 9 invites us to let our hearts break for those who are in need of Christ. It encourages us to remember God's promises never fail. And it invites us, it calls us to worship the sovereign God of mercy. Of mercy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word and the comfort it is to our souls and the comfort it is to this world because it is truth and it is grace. Lord, it's an invitation to know your son Jesus and the hope that he alone offers us. Thank you that you're a God who keeps his promises. Thank you that you're a God of mercy. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.